Hey, Jim here. Welcome back to Silent Sales Machine Radio. Today's episode is a recording from a recent conference that happened in this community with your fellow listeners to this podcast. Over 700 of us gathered in central Illinois, and we enjoyed over 30 sessions over a three-day period, multiple breakout sessions, and none of us actually were able to experience the entire event because it was spread out all over our large venue. So we made the videos available. And one of those 30 videos, actually one of the most popular videos at this point, is the session that we enjoyed with Daniel Lappin. Now, if you recall, a few weeks ago, we played the opening session. That was his keynote address. A wildly popular episode. Many of you have given us incredible feedback. Just very entertaining, but more importantly, very simply applicable to all of us, regardless of where our businesses are. Tremendous content. Well, you may not realize, but he did two sessions for us. Daniel Lappin did a second session that same day. About half the attendees of the event came back in and heard him speak a second time, even though they had five other options on the table at that point. Many, many people said, hey, I know it's being recorded, but I've got to hear what this guy has to say next. So they attended the second event, and that's what I'm going to play for you today. Daniel Lappin's second session from the recent Proven Conference. Now, a few pieces of housekeeping before we jump into this topic, and I'm going to share with you more what that topic is. And by the way, if you're watching the video, here's a here's a cool picture I'm showing on the screen now of the attendees. You can see all 700 plus of us jammed into the opening conference, uh, the main meeting room for the day. It was tremendous. But a lot of those people that I just showed in that picture, they paid in some cases thousands of dollars to come from around the world, paid for travel and lodging and registration. But you, if you weren't able to attend, still get to buy the videos for significantly less than what these good people paid. So if listening to today's content makes you think to yourself, wow, I probably should have been there. I regret not being at that event. And you want to grab those 30 videos, you can go to theprovenconference.com. And for a fraction of what the live attendees paid to attend, you can snag the entire event professionally recorded. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see the quality of these recordings. They turned out really nice. All of them look and sound fantastic. I'm reminded of our first event. This is the seventh time we've done this and it keeps getting bigger, but our first event, the video audio quality just wasn't quite there. I think we took a volunteer or paid someone a few bucks to stand in the back of the room. And it's kind of funny if you, if you actually, if you buy the videos for the proven conference, the one that just happened a few weeks ago, as I'm recording, we give you all those first six events because the content's tremendous. Even though that event happened several years ago, there's tremendous content. And we've pulled out some of the irrelevant sessions. So you're left with some really great content over the years from the different sessions. And you can see some of our leaders developing and their presentation styles changing, but the content's phenomenal. So you're going to get all six plus this most recent year for one crazy low price at theprovenconference.com if you want to snag those. But if you just want to enjoy the free content, Hey, that's awesome too. Today's podcast episode, like I told you, is Rabbi Daniel Lappin presenting on getting your mind straight. You can't make money. You can't live up to your full potential of running a business and earning money and making a profit and serving customers well until you have your head straight on the basics of what it means to make money. It's not complicated to explain, but today... Daniel Appen teaches us on how to take it from our head to our heart, how to begin to practice these things almost instinctually and the importance of working on that skill set. It's a very practical lesson. It's very challenging. I guarantee you, you're going to learn something new that you haven't heard before, even if you're already a big fan of Daniel Appen and his work. So enjoy this episode and try to imagine yourself there in the crowd with us enjoying this incredible event. We laughed, we cheered. It was a really good time. And one of the piece of housekeeping in today's show notes, besides the link to go check out the videos of this conference, and there's also a link you can go to sign up and get information for next year's July 2020 conference if you want to join us for that. And one other thing I'm going to stick in the notes today is a free Facebook group 
that we've recently launched in conjunction with Daniel Lappin. We're helping him out with Facebook. He'd never had a Facebook group before. And we approached him and said, hey, we'd love to help you manage one. There's so many people in our community. They'd like to hang out, hear more from you, interact with you online. Right now, there's no place really where you can do that and interact with the other fans of the biblical concepts taught by Daniel Lappin. Well, we've launched a Facebook group. The group's name is Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. Now, that's quite a mouthful. So I'll stick a link right in the show notes at silentgym.com slash podcast. Go to this episode, look for the show notes. You'll see a link to that Facebook group. Join us. Several members of our community, several leaders from our community are already in there enjoying that group. So hey, with that long introduction, I introduce to you my friend and mentor, Daniel Lappin at the Proven Conference 2019. You're going to love this. Thanks for watching. How many of you appreciated my good friend, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, in the opening session? Yes, thank you, sir. So glad you're here with us. And you've made a very wise decision coming back in here, those of you who did so, because you know that the other sessions are all being recorded. You're going to get all those recordings, but an opportunity to hang out with this gentleman is treasured time well spent, as I'm sure many of you agree. So my friend, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, again, such an honor, such a pleasure to have you here. Can't wait to hear what you're going to share with us next. And I return the floor to you, my friend. Thank you very much indeed, Jim. And uh, I think you know how much I appreciate what you do in terms of making it possible for so many people uh, around the country to move themselves forward in the right direction. So I really appreciate that. Well, the, uh, an interesting thing happened in uh, May 1953, long time ago. What happened was that a guy called Edmund Hillary, together with his friend Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, uh, went up to the top of Mount Everest for the very first time. Nobody had ever done it before. Nobody thought it could be done before. Any idea how many people went up last summer? Like, do you think more like one, more like 10, more like 100? Yeah, it's, it's like more, more than 100. So much so that you may know that there is a littering problem on Everest. Did you know that? There's snicker wrappers all up and down the mountain and nobody's got enough extra energy to pick them up. So they just sit there. It really irritates the Nepal people. But um, the question is, why did nobody do it before Edmund Hillary did it in 1953? Apparently, it's not that big a deal. I'm not saying I could do it. But there's plenty of people in this room who, with a little bit of training, a little bit of preparation, you could do it. Um, there's a guide I know in Seattle called Ed Vistas, who... Um, who doesn't charge more than a few hundred dollars to get you up every... Now, he charges 50,000 to get you down again. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but if you're willing to pay, you know, he'll get you up there. So why did nobody do it before Edmund Hillary? And exactly the same question can be asked about something that happened exactly a year later, May 1954. It was an exciting 12 months. What happened in May 1954 is a young medical student by the name of Roger Bannister wrote, uh, ran a mile in under four minutes. Now, not only did nobody ever do it before him, but experts, medical experts, said that the human being could not run a four-minute mile. As a matter of fact, uh, pathy newsreel footage the original one they released before they corrected it showed Bannister breaking the tape at 3.59 and he flung himself onto the ground and he just lay there panting on the grass. But from the newsreel vantage point, the announcer said, well, just like the doctor said, Roger Bannister is dead. <laughs> but he died doing what he loved. And no sooner were the words out of his mouth then Roger Bannister bounded to his feet and ran a victory lap. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, how many college athletes run four-minute miles now? Hundreds, right? 
Why didn't anyone do it before? They didn't believe it could be done. It's as simple as that. And that is one of the most powerful aspects of us being spiritual entities, right? A horse can run a race whether it believes in anything or not. A kangaroo, does he really have to sit down and have a psych session with his therapist about how he jumps? You know, it's absurd. But human beings have to believe that what they're doing can be done. You get a totally different level of performance. Try this experiment at home. If you've got young kids available, if you don't borrow someone else's, they're always happy to lend them. And um, uh, tell your child you've lost your car keys somewhere in the house. And then even, you know, tell them you'll give them a, a chocolate bar when they find it. They may or they may not search with some diligence. But if you tell them it definitely is in this room, the keys are somewhere in this room, they look with a different level of determination because they know it can be done. If you tell them, I think I lost them somewhere in the house, who knows? Maybe he was, maybe he was somewhere else. They don't believe it can be done. But as soon as you believe that it can be done, the level of commitment, the level of buy-in is totally different. And a number of people for whom I signed books during lunch, and people, a number of people said to me, coming here and actually being with Jim and with the team in person reassures them that they can do this. It's crucial, absolutely crucial, because your level of performance goes up by an order of magnitude when you know it can be done. And taking it even a stage further, one of the problems is that we are deeply indoctrinated to believe that it cannot be done morally and ethically. We've all been indoctrinated that way. And I have to tell you, you know, you might think that you are immune to indoctrination. You might think that you are more sophisticated and that indoctrination doesn't work on you. And I'm really sorry to tell you this. And as your rabbi, I wouldn't lie to you. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you are just as susceptible to indoctrination as I am and as we all are. Even the great King David was. An amazing story while King David is fleeing from Saul who's out to get him and he's trying to set up a camp and he's looking around for, for all his friends and he's got a very close friend called Mepiboshet. And Mepiboshet is a, a, a guy who's handicapped. He doesn't move very quickly. So he sent his chief of staff ahead of him to King David. And this chief of staff, was an absolutely despicable and reprehensible rogue. And he comes to David and David says to him, where's your boss? He says, ah, my boss, your old friend, he's joined with your father against you. Not true. David said, what? Well, as soon as we finished with this war and peace returns, I'm gonna take all his lands and give them to you. A day later, Mepiboshet hobbles into the camp and says, my king, I'm here to serve. David says, huh, I didn't expect you. I thought you joined the other side. What are you talking about? How can you suspect me? I'm, I, we've been close for, of course I'm here with you. He said, you know what? Uh, I then mistakenly gave your estate to uh, your chief of staff. I'll tell you what, why don't you and he split it? That's the great King David. What's going on here? What is the Bible trying to tell us by telling of us of this lamentable episode? Don't you think what you would have said is, what? He lied to me telling me that uh, you, you were on the other side, you're not. I'm taking it back from him and giving it back to you and what's more, I'm gonna punish him. Why didn't King David do that? Because it is truly impossible, the Bible is teaching us, even if you're King David, it is truly impossible 
to completely get out of your head something you've heard. So if you would have asked King David on a logical and intellectual level, hey, do you believe that your friend, Mappy Borshed, is with you? He said, 100%. Yeah, but yesterday, you, yesterday you, you believed that he's gone the other. No, 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 I, I was wrong. It was a mistake. So why didn't he give everything back? Because there's a tiny, tiny lingering part of him that couldn't get out of his head. That emotion of anger and, and resentment that he felt when this man lied to him that his friend had abandoned him. If this was not true, car companies and every other company that spends billions of dollars on advertising, they wouldn't do it. It doesn't mean that if you see a BMW ad, everyone's going to run out and buy a BMW. Of course not. But it doesn't have to work that way. And you guys all understand marketing. You know what it means. It doesn't mean every eyeball is going to act on it. But enough will to make the whole exercise pay off in a very good way. We all buy into this. We may know better and we may tell ourselves oh, it has no impact on me, but it does. On a subconscious level, everything we hear does impact us. And so don't be surprised that on its most profound level and deep within us, you on some level believe that making money is evidence of badness on your part. It shows you're a greedy person. It shows that all you care about is yourself. Money? You're trying to make money? Now, why do I say this? Well, because I know you are not immune to this any more than I am or anyone else. We are fed an incessant Niagara-like cascade of disinformation about money, wealth, and business. Happens all the time. Who is the bad guy? Who commits the majority of murders on primetime television? You know who it is? I'll paint a scene for you. The camera scans up the side of the building and then it zooms in to the penthouse office in this glass skyscraper and there's the CEO and our young hero is just confronting him with evidence that the company is violating the environment and the business executive reaches into the top right-hand drawer of his desk and he pulls out what we all keep in our desks, right? a stainless steel 357 Magnum revolver. <laughs> and he takes it out and he's just about to shoot our hero when fortunately the Marines come bursting through the door and everything is fine and the wicked CEO goes to jail and the hero goes on to heroics with other evil business corporations. You've seen it a hundred times and so have your children, and so have your relatives, and so have your customers. Everybody has seen this again and again and again. In movies, it's exactly the same thing as well. You, you think about who the villains are. They're all rich, successful. They're all people who make money, and because of that, they're bad. How about phrases like, have you heard phrases like stinking rich? Let me tell you something. Stinking poor is more like it. It stinks a lot more to be poor than rich. And yet why, why do we use that phrase? Or uh, the worst one of all, the worst one is um, as soon as a wealthy person makes a well-publicized charitable request, the uh, pundits and the announcers, everyone, oh, how wonderful it is to see him giving back to society. What does that say about what he was doing to society while he made the money in the first place? Must have been taking it from society. And most people believe this is how it works. You know, in the 1700s, there were a lot of pirates in the Caribbean. Most people think it's just a Disney ride, but it's actually true. 
And um, there were actually a number of Jewish ones as well, by the way. And the way that worked is that in 1492, um, the Jews were thrown out of Spain and Portugal. And a number of them ended up in Holland. And a few years later, um, Spain was at war with Holland and England. Holland and England were allies. Spain was on the other side. So a number of the Jews who'd formerly lived in Spain, now living in Holland, including the chief rabbi of the community, went to the Dutch authorities and they went to the British authorities and they said, would you be willing to allow us to become pirates? And we promise to only attack Spanish ships, they're your enemy, and we will split the plunder with you. What do you think Holland and England said? With the greatest of pleasure, brilliant idea. And so there actually were Jewish pirates in the Caribbean. In fact, Kingston Harbor in Jamaica used to shut down on Jewish holy days because there was so much Jewish activity at that time. Anyway, I find the story very reassuring because I always think to myself, if this rabbi thing doesn't work out for me. (laughs) I think I was born a few centuries too late. My family, we spend a lot of time boating, but uh, uh, my children's children's friends um, actually believe I am a pirate. They're bothered by it. Some of them actually asked me just a few weeks ago, uh, one Sabbath afternoon, one of them was visiting, and he said, uh, is it true that you are a pirate? (laughs) And I said to him, if I am really a pirate, and you ask me that question, and remembering that the police do not like pirates these days, if you ask me if I'm a pirate, what do you think I would say? He said, I guess you tell me you're not a pirate. I said, you know what? I'm not a pirate. (laughs) Which just persuaded him beyond all shadow of a doubt. And then a few minutes later, he came back. He said, "Um, so I'm I'm puzzled because the Bible says, like in the Ten Commandments, you're not allowed to steal. Isn't that what pirates do? And that one I had to think about for a couple of minutes while I hemmed and hawed. And I said to him, well, we have a special dispensation. Anyway, that's my little excursion into, into, into piracy. <laughs> but um, the thing is that um, what pirates used to do was after a long and happy career of pillaging and plundering, I mean, even the work sounds appealing, like you go off on Monday morning and somebody says, where are you off to? I'm off to pillage and plunder. I mean, that, you know, it's nice. Um, But after a lifetime of this, what happens is the the pirate retires and he wants to become accepted into polite society, right? What does he do? He builds a church and dedicates the church. Or he builds a museum or an art gallery. In other words, he's giving back to society after having plundered society. What I've just described to you is what more than half of the people in America believe about business. Now, I ask you a simple question. As tax-paying business professionals, each and every one of you, who takes more of your money? The government or other businessmen? The government has the power of coercion. They will take your money. The only way a business professional gets your money is by giving you something you value more. It's voluntary. That's the beauty of the marketplace. Well, what we're trying to combat is this constant barrage of really bad information beaming at us and blasting at us from every direction, saying making money shows what a rotten person you are. And the more you make, the more rotten you really are. And the harder you try, it just shows what a selfish person you are. Um, you know, any occupation, that requires a euphemism is a really bad thing to go into. Um, I I used to take great delight. Uh, We we used to live on an island near Seattle and once a week the garbage truck used to come by and um, I used to take my kids out because over the years I got to know the garbage. I was always the same guy. And I used to say to him in front of the kids, I said, so what do you do? What's your work? 
He says, man, I just pick up all the rotten, stinking garbage. That's what I do. And I said, do you like it? He says, sure, I'm, I'm done with my day at 11 o'clock. I've got the rest of the day to myself and I get paid really well for it. And I, I wanted my kids to hear because most times when you ask a garbage man what he does, he says, I'm a sanitation engineer. <laughs> Watch out for euphemisms. He's a garbage man, it's wonderful. I mean, do you know what life would be like without him? This is great. Well, one of the biggest euphemisms is reserved for politicians. Public service. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. And I, I tell this, you know, I don't get invited to university uh, commencements so often these days, but when I used to, um, <laughs> no, because, you know, they, they want you to pat them on the head and blow their noses for them and... Um, so, no, I, I explain, look, uh, if you tell me you are going into public service, the first thing I do is clutch my wallet because public service means there's another 10 fingers in my pocket because you're going to get paid, you're going to get benefits, you're going to get a pension, you're going to live about 25 to 50% higher than you could in the private sector for the same general level of incompetence. That's what's happening. Public service. No. Go into business. And I've had teachers, high school teachers, confirm this. I say to them, ask people as the 12th grade year comes to an end, ask people what they want to do. And I encourage them to prime somebody. And the pattern is always the same. Uh, you know, what are you going to do when you, when, when you finish? Well, one guy wants to be an environmental engineer to help everyone get clean air. Oh, you know, wonderful, applause, terrific. Um, somebody else, I want to become a child psychologist, look after all the, oh, terrific. Uh, everybody, you know, I want to go into public service to bring honesty back to government. Oh, terrific. And then uh, invariably, I have them arranged that there's a girl who gets up and she says, uh, well, uh, I'd actually like to start a, a, a company. I want to make a million dollars before I'm 30 years old and I want to employ hundreds of people and like there's either a silence or their booze from high school students. They think that's bad. Shows you don't care. This is what we're dealing with and we are all subject to it. And so, yeah, Nobody believed that Everest could be climbed. As soon as somebody proved it, everybody went and did it. Nobody believed you could run a mile in four minutes. Roger Bannister did it, everybody goes and does it. People don't believe that you can make money and retain your integrity. And I say, it, you got it the wrong way around. The only way you'll really make money is with your integrity. There is no other way. And so, one of the enormous handicaps in making money and being a business professional is losing the idea that this is something you actually can do and still be who you see yourself as, that you are a better you with a nice bank account. You're not a worse you, you're a better you because you didn't take it away from anybody. You made it by serving other human beings. And the freedom of exchange is so elegant. It means that nobody was forced to give you their money. Everybody who gave it to you received from you something they valued more. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. So it's an enormous advantage in business to be able to know that what you're doing is filled with intrinsic integrity and morality. And uh, I, I mentioned in the earlier session that in the Lord's language and in the Hebrew Bible, unlike in English, if a word seems to have two meanings, the only way that you actually know what it means is if you merge those two meanings into one. So, for instance, in English, um, a rose is a flower 
or it's somebody arose from the table. A flush is what you do to a toilet, but it's also something you can have in a card game. Uh, or if you're a carpenter, you might finish the formica flush with the edge. None of those words have anything to do with each other. But in the Lord's language, it doesn't work that way. And so I just want to quickly walk you through four verses that have really shaped the people of Israel and our approach to business, and it can do the same to you. I don't know exactly how to quantify it, but if I tell you that what I'm about to tell you is worth a million dollars, that does not sound improbable to me at all. Not tomorrow or not next week, but if you are liable to make an extra million, not in your lifetime, but over the next measurable financial period of, of a year or maybe 18 months or two years, and you're going to make an extra million dollars because of this, yeah, that, that, that's, I wouldn't be surprised. That's what people tell me. So I'll, I'll walk you through this real quickly. It's, quite, it's kind of easy. Um, uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, and God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it, right? Uh, Exodus chapter 20, 10 commandments. Uh, commandment number four, six days you shall do all your work. All right, so I've given you two work verses, right? Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it. Uh, you know what the Sabbath is? Sabbath is on the seventh day, don't do your work, but that's only a Sabbath if you've done your work for the six days. In other words, lays around all week and you're not fulfilling the, the fourth commandment. Fourth commandment is go to work for six days and then on the seventh you stop. Okay, now if you just put those two verses into storage and let's go and look at two more verses, this verse over here is um, God saying to Moses at the fourth chapter of Exodus, go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Okay? Right? These are easy verses to find. Let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. Nowhere does Moses actually say to Pharaoh, let my people go. It's always attached to the, that they may worship him or worship God in the desert. That's two verses there. You remember those two? You still got them in storage? You seem unsure. Do I have to do remedial Bible here? <laughs> so we got the two work verses there. Here is one worship verse. I'll give you another worship verse. Uh, towards the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. Joshua says, you know what? You people can do whatever you like. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. All right? Moses and the Exodus, let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. You people can do what you like. Me and my family will worship the Lord. Over here, we've got Adam working in the Garden of Eden. Six days, you must do all your work. You with it? Two work verses, two worship verses, okay? In the King James translation of the Bible, it's exactly as I've told you, there's, there's nothing to connect those two with these two, excepting that in the original Hebrew text, they are not two separate words for work and worship. One word, Oved. Do you know how profound this is? This tells you that I grew up from my youngest years knowing that taking care of customers and clients and doing what my boss wants is another way of worshiping God. My work and my worship is the same thing. Well, it makes sense when you think about it. How many times do I remember this happening in my own family? Little kids squabbling and fighting, bashing each other on the head, all sorts of stuff going on. And then one of them comes with an angelic look and says, Daddy, is there anything you'd like? Can I bring you something? Yes, some tranquility and peace. Stop kicking your brother's head. <laughs> well, that makes sense, right? Our Father in heaven says exactly the same thing. I want you to serve my other children. That's what I want you to do. That's another way of worshiping me. Hey, I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to let you know 
about our latest sponsor. I'm talking about Your Tasker, U R T A S K E R. If you're selling on Amazon, eBay, Shopify, or Walmart, and you have an established brand, you're looking to grow, you need a team. Well, hey, if you're doing $50,000 or so a month or more in sales, you could cut your costs dramatically, boost your productivity by outsourcing tasks like pay-per-click management, listing optimization, customer service, inventory management. That's what they do at Your Tasker. Again, you are T-A-S. K-E-R. They're managing 250 accounts of great online sellers like you, and they're unique in a few different ways. Everyone on their team is an e-commerce trained specialist, trained in the latest strategies that will make your business grow. If you want to have a free consultation with these guys, which I highly recommend if you're qualified, give them a call. What do you got to lose? Just chat with them. They can help you grow. They've got a great team standing by ready. I've got a link in the show notes today. Or just go to U-R-T-A-S-K-E-R.com, yourtasker.com. Tell them I sent you. You're going to love these guys. And I, I sometimes uh, recount my first car. I was 16 years old. It, uh, I just used all my money on buying this first car. It was a Ford. And I was so excited and so proud. I couldn't believe it that my saving up had paid off and I have a car. And it suddenly developed a horrible rattling noise, which I knew was not going to be uh, good news at all. And I said to my dad, I don't know what to do. He said, well, there's a member of my... My dad was a, a famous rabbi. He said, uh, there's a member of my congregation uh, who has an auto repair shop, and he's a friend of mine. Um, ask him what he thinks. So I drove down to Mr. Goldberg's store, and uh, he said, start her up, son. And I started... <laughs> it was terrible. And he, he made the, the worst noise you ever want to hear from your mechanic. He went like this. <laughs> worst noise. And, um, and so he said, uh, why don't you sit down there for a bit? I'm going to take it around to the back. I sat there chewing my nails. Must have been half an hour, maybe an hour. Um, the car comes back. It sounds like my mom's Singer sewing machine. It runs. It's so beautiful. And... Um, I was a little nervous because I didn't have much money left after buying the car. So uh, and Mr. Goldberg gives me the keys and says, uh, well, off you go. And I said, Mr. Goldberg, how much do I owe you? And he said, uh, son, um, your father once did a huge favor for me that I could never repay him. There's no charge. So I get in the car and I pull it out of the driveway and I stop. All of a sudden it occurs to me, Mr. Goldberg thinks it's my father's car. I didn't clarify that it's mine. So he thinks he's paying my father back by doing a free repair, but he's not. It's really me. I felt terrible. I really was tempted to just drive away, but I just couldn't do it. And I turned off the car, went back inside. He said, yeah, what, is there a problem? I said, look, I'm sorry. I just have to tell you. I appreciate you did it for free, but this isn't my father's car, it's mine. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, son, you're too young to understand this now, but one day you'll know that if somebody can help a child of yours, that's worth more than anything he could do for you. And it's true. So now you see how our Father in heaven thinks. Every time... I take care of a customer every time I take care of a client. Every time I find somebody else that I can serve, he smiles because he'd much rather I take care of one of his children than of him directly. And that's why we use the same word for service, a worship service, but we also do customer service as well because when I take care of a customer, I'm worshiping God. Work Worship, merged, same thing. You take care of another one of God's children. He doesn't need you for another three hours in church. Rather go and do that. That'll be worth something. That's the idea. Now, can you imagine what a powerful tool this is in attitude adjustment? When Jewish people are born and raised and, and grow up with their mother's milk, understanding that taking care of business is pleasing God. 
So we are much better equipped to defeat the dreadful propaganda and disinformation that flows at us all the time of how bad it is to make money. No, it's not. Money proves that you're taking care of another person. It's wonderful. Well, you've got to give charity. That's a totally different conversation. Totally different. You say that in the spirit of getting money from the pirate to validate and justify his presence in society. No, not at all. When you have made money, charity's got nothing to do with it. You have already done service to the world because every single person who bought your service or your product, every one of them is better off than he was before. He did it voluntarily. He liked what you provided him with. So you've created this vast reservoir of goodness and goodwill among all your clients, let alone your employees. You've already done all that. Now, we're talking about charity. That's a different conversation. But you've done good by the process of making You must have because the exchange is such that the numbers would prove it, right? If, uh, imagine if you would that uh, I want a new pair of shoes. You know those sneakers with red lights in the heel that flash when you walk? I'm really looking for one of those in my size. I can't, <laughs> you people laugh in a very mean way. I don't get it. <laughs> um, so I go into a store, right? And, uh, and I find it's great. And what's more, this is so amazing. This is a complete stranger. He's willing to make me happy with a pair of shoes that are just right. Not only that, he goes down on his knees to change my shoe and put on the new one. And he says, try it out. And I give him $20 for my shoes. And he says, have a nice day. Of course, God smiles at that transaction. Two strangers end up happier than they were before. Wait a second, who says they're happier? Well, let's try a thought experiment. Let's bring a materialistic Marxist along for our little experiment. So he comes running after me and he says, that wicked capitalist in the store, he got your $20. Why don't you come with me and we'll go get it back? And I say to him, you, you don't understand. I don't want the money back. The shoes are worth more to me. That's why I did the exchange. He doesn't get it, so he runs back into the store. And he says, that wicked capitalist walked out with your inventory. If you come help me, we'll catch him and bring your shoes back. The shoe store proprietor says, you don't understand. Those shoes are on my books at $10. That's what I paid the factory or the wholesalers. My customer paid me 20. I'd much rather have the $20 than the shoes. That's what, that's what I do. And the Marxist materialist walks away shaking his head. He doesn't get it. So now how much wealth was actually created by these two strangers talking to one another and bringing about a transaction? Well, that's easy. Let's kill off the Marxist and uh, bring an accountant. An accountant, right? Which is really just an economist without charisma. And... Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, it's a bad joke because I... Like I genuflect before my accountant. It's, it's so important to have a good accountant, I can't tell you. It's so important. It mustn't be your brother-in-law or your cousin's sister. It's really got to be a good one. And um, let's get hold of a good accountant. And he comes after me, taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, we're trying to figure out what's happened to your financial statement by buying the shoes. I say, well, what can I tell you? He says, well, we're gonna do a very real experiment now. I'm gonna offer you $20 for the shoes you just bought. What am I gonna to say to him? You mad? I've been looking for weeks for a pair in my size. I'm, what are you talking about? He says, okay, how about $30? I'll give you $30 for your shoes. And I think to myself, you know, it's not worth it to me. I mean, I'm happy with these shoes. He says, $40, I'll give you $40 for your shoes. So now I think to myself, you know, I mean, business is business, 100% profit, but still there's trouble involved. He sees me on the edge, but undecided. He says, okay, $45, that's the end. $45, I take my shoes off and I give them to him. 
that cost me 25 minutes ago, yeah, I can do that all day. We've just established the value of my shoes. So my financial statement has gone from having $20 to now having $45. Now, I obviously acknowledge that in conventional accounting today, which is very government regulated, we have to use something called gap accounting, generally accepted accounting principles. And so you can't actually do it this way. You've got to do it on the basis of uh, depreciation, et cetera, et cetera. But in real terms, we've just established what these shoes are worth to me. They're $45. So my net worth went up by how much? Because I stopped in the shoe store. 25 up, right? Because previously I had 20. I don't have the 20 anymore, but instead I have 45. So my net value went up by $25, simply by talking to another human being and finding a way for us to please one another. How about, let's take my accountant into the shoe store. What happens with him? Goes into the shoe store and he says to the shoe store owner, um, would you like your shoes back? The guy says, you're crazy. I have already exchanged something that to me was worth $10 because that's what I paid for it when I bought it. And I've now exchanged it for $20. So how much has his net worth gone up by because of the transaction? 10, right? So 25 here, 10 there, $35 of wealth was just created by these two human beings talking to one another and doing a transaction. That is how it works. That's the real, real numbers involved. And now you're saying, you're a wicked person, Mr. Shop Owner, because you haven't given charity yet. He'll say, look, in Rabbi Lappin's book, Thou Shalt Prosper, 10 Commands for Making Money, the ninth chapter is giving charity. It's all the way back at number nine because it is an important part of making money. It's nothing to do with justifying making money. It's not an apology. It's not giving back. It's giving. I have nothing to apologize for. Really important to understand because, you know, in, um, in martial arts and, and also in the military, one of the most difficult things to teach somebody, and it sounds childish and basic, but one of the most difficult things to teach somebody, man or woman, is to punch somebody in the nose with all your strength. It's really hard because most decent people don't want to do that. And so even though your head tells you, hey, now's the time. If there ever was a time, now's the time to hit him in the nose with everything you got, your heart pulls the punch. And that's one of the reasons that one of the techniques they use for helping people get this is they imagine, they make you imagine that your, the nose that is your target is actually about six inches further away from where it is. And so that way, by the time you start pulling your punch, you've already hit him. Unfortunately, because we get indoctrinated into believing that making money is bad, we pull our punches. We don't do all we can. We don't push as hard as we can. We are frightened of appearing too aggressive. I mean, when have you ever heard of somebody drowning in a riptide and the lifeguard comes swimming out there, grabs him by the neck and starts hauling him back to safety and the guy says, you know what, lifeguard, you're being very aggressive about this. No, when you're saving somebody's life, there isn't such a thing as being too aggressive. If you're helping a customer, there isn't such a thing as being too aggressive. Your customer will tell you if, if he doesn't want it. But for you to push with all you've got, not in a, obviously not in an obnoxious way, but, you know, another phone call, another connection, another, just pushing with everything. If you're doing good, why wouldn't you do that? The only reason is we are indoctrinated, all of us, to believe that somehow there's something immoral, undignified, not right. And so we, we justify when we don't push as hard as we should, we say to ourselves, well, you know, because I'm a good person, I don't want to push hard. No, that, that's not correct. 
You're not a good person for not pushing hard. You're something else, but we won't discuss what that is. You don't fool yourself into thinking you're a good person. All that means is that you have bought into the evil and lying equation, poverty equals virtue. No, poverty doesn't equal virtue. It's really, really hard to do. But, you know, there's a reason that coaches psych teams up before a big game. Because if there's the slightest part of your soul, we're human beings, we're not cats, camels, cows, and kangaroos. We're human beings. If there's the slightest part of your soul that has doubts about what you're doing, you won't be able to do it. And so we have to overcome that. And that's exactly what we're talking about. It's why one of the early chapters in my book is learning to believe in the dignity and morality of building a business. It's not, oh, because then I'll be able to donate to my church or then I'll be able to fund a mission. No. What you do with it, it's very nice. Do whatever you want to afterwards. Giving charity is a separate discussion. But you're doing a virtuous and good thing by making money in the first place. You're making our boss smile. That's how it works. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish it weren't so, but I, I think we're kind of out of time. So um, am I right about that? Oh, really? I thought it was... Yeah, you told me 2.30. Oh, well, I, I mean, I've used up everything I had to say. I, I thought it was this. I've got nothing else. No, that's not true. I've got plenty to tell you. Um, okay, well, that's, uh, that's good. We've got a few more minutes then. I'm not going to take the time on questions and answers now. I mean, I, I like conversation, I like the Q&A, but we've only got a few more minutes. And the fact is that every single question you have is covered in my material that I've prepared. I strongly encourage you to just go along and invest in that. I see many, many, many of you already have. I signed any number of books at, uh, over lunch. But if, if you haven't and if you do need to delve more deeply into wrapping yourself around these timeless truths and these permanent principles, you just go to youneedarabbi.com and go to the financial section. And don't forget to get 20% off today and tomorrow using uh, Proven, Proven as the, uh, as the code. Um, so be aware, as I said, you've got to be aware that really you are being indoctrinated. You have been indoctrinated. And it actually takes effort to work yourself out of that and to recognize the value you are delivering in making money. In other words, understanding that when you are doing good to somebody, the fact that you make a profit in doing so in no way diminishes the value of what we're doing. Or to put another way, who do you think has served more human beings? I don't mean this in a disparaging kind of a way. Many people do not hear my exact words and they get upset and indignant at what I'm about to say. Who has helped more human beings? Bill Gates or the sainted Mother Teresa of Bombay? Who's helped more human beings? So who's made more money? Obviously, that's how it works. Now, how's Bill Gates helped more human beings? I'll tell you, it's very simple. I hate the blue screen of death on Windows as much as anybody else. But given that, in spite of that, when I had the option of buying a computer and spending $175 on a Windows operating system or continuing to use my pad and pen, I chose the computer. You know why? Because it lets me make more money in the same amount of time. I can write with a typewriter, but it probably would take me twice as long, if not more, to write a book than with a word processor. Type on a computer, make a mistake, realize a certain paragraph belongs somewhere else. Man, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Bill Gates. Or thank you, Steve Jobs, if you prefer Apple. It doesn't make any difference. But nobody forced me. No government agency held the threat of jail over my head to make me buy that computer and that software. I did it because it improves my life. And that's true for the billion other people who've, done, who've made the same decision. And how many people has Mother Teresa helped? A big number, but whatever you want 
Is it a million? I mean, it would be a real stretch to say she's helped a million people. I'll give you 10 million just to be safe. It's still not the same number of people as Bill Gates has helped. That's what money is about. It's helping other human beings. And the fact that you make money while doing so in no way diminishes the value of what you deliver. In other words, you're down on your luck, you need a leg up, and uh, you come to your church and say, hey, I, I really could use some help here. Church says, no problem, we got an event on today where you can get some money. We, we really wanna bless you and help you. Okay, terrific. They say, okay, listen, over there there's a room, you go in there, and there's a guy there will give you $10. And I want you to know he's giving it to you with real love. Um, it's coming out of his household budget, but he doesn't mind because he wants to bless you. Okay, how about that room there? <laughs> that room there, the guy's going to give you $100, not $10. Um, I don't know that he's giving it to you with real love. Um, he's got some kind of tax gag going where he makes $1,000 out of every 100 he gives you. Who are you going to go to? Is this a hard question? Is the fact that he's making $1,000, does that make his $100 worth less to me? Of course not. Do I care what's in his head and heart? To be honest, no. God does, but I don't. I've got two neighbours. On one side of my house is a neighbour who loves me. He's told me so many times. He says, I love the Jewish people and he loves me. There's only one problem. And that is, he kicks my kids, he killed my cat, and he keys my car. But in his heart, he really loves me. He wants me to get to heaven, preferably soon. <laughs> On the other side is, um, uh, is another neighbor who I've often thought, you know, not crazy about me, but he's been a fabulous neighbor. When our water tank burst while we were on vacation, I came back and he'd called a plumber, he'd got it all taken care of, he's got a key to my house. When we once drove off leaving a kid at home, which is easier to do than you might think, um, <laughs> the kid went next door to the neighbour and he took care. Which neighbour do I prefer? The one who loves me but behaves appallingly or the one who behaves beautifully but thinks badly? There's no question about it. I don't know how God will judge him, that's not the issue. But I know who I prefer. And so I walk into my hotel last night and the room is spotless and every light goes on when you turn it on and the bathroom is shining. You know that I'm not checking out of that hotel without leaving money on the table for the housekeeping staff. Somebody says, well, Lappin, what are you doing that for? You think they don't get paid? That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. I have to express appreciation for the benefit they gave me. I don't care if they've been paid or not. I still acknowledge the benefit. And that's exactly how this works. When I take care of a customer, I'm doing something really, really virtuous and good. Oh, you're doing it just for the money. Listen, whatever is in your head, I'm not responsible for. I have trouble sometimes figuring out my own motivations, let alone yours. <laughs> But one thing I can tell you is that I'm going to take care of this customer with diligence and integrity. And they are going to be better off for that than they were before. Yeah, but you're making a profit on that. Excuse me, what's that got to do with anything? How does that diminish the action? It doesn't, not at all. Are you understanding this? Now, here's the most difficult journey of all. It's 15 inches from the head to the heart. Right now, what I've given you is in the head. Your challenge is to get it to the heart. Doesn't do much good in the head, you know. I'm visiting New York. New York's a weird place, right? And uh, I'm gonna be in a bad part of town. That's pretty much all of New York. And, um, <laughs> and so on my way, I stop at the airport before I fly into New York and I pick up um, self-defense in 20 easy lessons. And on the plane, I, I flipped through it. Because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Put it away in my pocket, we land, I go out. That night, I leave the hotel on my way to a meeting. Sure enough, I'm walking down the road, 
and all of a sudden an arm comes around my neck and I feel a knife pushing in my ribs and I hear a voice saying, give me your wallet. And I say to him, uh, hold on a second, give me a break here. Um, attacks from the back, that's chapter 17. I just need to get to my book. <laughs> Doesn't work like that. Buying that book gets the information to here, but months or years of practice with a teacher and, a, and in, a, in a dojo or a gym changes it that the minute that arm goes around my neck, I explode in a subconscious muscular spasm that drives a foot into, uh, my shoe into his ankle and my knee somewhere else and my fist into his throat and he's sorry he ever started up. But that's because the information got to here. This is a tough journey. So far, whatever I've given you today for the most part has been to here. The challenge is to bring it to life so as it moves to the heart. Once it's inside of you to that extent, then you start acting on it. You've got to remember that um, knowing how to react to an overture from somebody else makes all the difference. I spoke about the mouth and being able to articulate eloquently, all of these things, very, very important. But if somebody is in a negotiation and says, uh, uh, well, you know what, I don't want to do a seven-year uh, contract. Three years is too short, seven is too long, five, and the other person says, no deal. I have to know immediately how to react to that because I never, ever, ever want a conversation to have the words no deal because I can almost always rest, not every time is an exception, but most times when two people have got as far in a discussion as for there to be a no deal, that means we were very close. There actually was a deal envisaged. So all I got to do is find it. This is like my stroll down the bad part of New York. If I've got to now think about what to say, that comes across as insincerity to my listener. He's, he's seeing my, my mind wheels turn. That's not good. But if I react instantly, because the principles have gone from here to here, then I say, wait a second. There is a deal here. There's something that could really work for you that I could go with. Now, there's not a person on earth who doesn't really like what? Go on, prove it to me. Yeah, sure, let me prove it to you. But I can only do that if I didn't have to look up my book in chapter 17, but I'd already absorbed it. That's how that works. These are all principles of ancient Jewish wisdom that um, I am absolutely thrilled I spend my life making accessible to people of every single background. This is stuff straight out of ancient Jewish wisdom. It's the Hebrew interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. And, um, and these things are just, they're beautiful. But it's not surprising, right, that the uh, source of the information it's like what happened, do you remember in the old days, you used to open your glove box in a new car, you'd find a nice fat manual, now you get a CD. But um, that instruction manual, that's from the manufacturer. That's what the Bible is to me, the manufacturer's instruction manual. Does God want us to be rich? I don't know. He hasn't told me that. But here's what I do know. He does want us to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs and the desires of his other children. And it doesn't surprise me at all that a good and loving God would reward my determination to take care of his other kids with the incredible blessing of financial abundance. That's what it is. Money is purely spiritual. It's not discs of metal or strips of colored paper or the orientation of iron oxide molecules on the back of your credit card or ones and zeros on the hard drive in your bank's computer. No, money is a measure of what people do for one another. It's a godly measure. And through his goodness, he's given us a way of measuring what we are doing. Does he want me to be rich? I don't know about that, but I do know he wants me to be really focused on doing everything I can for his other children. The money comes by itself.
Does that make sense? Okay, great. My website is rabbidaniellappin.com or more easily, youneedarabbi.com, same thing. And um, stay in touch. I love what you guys are doing. Building your businesses, is, it's beautiful. It's exactly the right thing. It's what you should be doing. And it's just so wonderful that you are able to be here to benefit from what this guy decided, what's it, 10 years ago now? To, sorry, going on for 20. 20. Um, to make accessible. And he's improving all of our lives. And is he making money doing that? I sure hope so, but it's irrelevant. That's not the point. That's simply proof of how much he's helping us. That's how it works. Thanks, folks. Good to be with you. God Thank bless. Thank you, my friends. Daniel Lappin. And even though I've heard you share some of those things before, my friend, what a pleasure, what an honor, truly. Thank you, thank you. Oh, and I get to be advised by this guy when I have a challenge, a business challenge. Like, help me find the scriptural truth here on a few occasions, and, and we're beginning to work even more closely. You're going to see his name uh, coming up quite a bit around here. We're starting to do some work together. And it's also yeah, and he said, I'm a, he's advised by me as well, and, and that's just a, what an honor that is. <laughs> we're, we're helping each other shape our businesses. Hey, one last thing before I let you go. I want to remind you about today's sponsor. Big thanks to your tasker, spelled U-R-T-A-S-K-E-R.com. Go to their website. Get a free consultation if your business is selling more than $50,000 per month on eBay, Amazon, Shopify, or Walmart. And these guys can help you with those daily tasks and you can really grow. It's time to get a team. Give your tasker a shout and tell them I sent you. Thanks for sponsoring the show today, guys. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Silent Sales Machine Radio. Visit SilentJim.com for a link to our free newsletter, our free Facebook group, and all of our resources mentioned on today's show.